Welcome to the JLA cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John, and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ, and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. And PJ, it finally happened. Um, We missed a week. We did. Or a we did. I, I would like to just first thing say I am so sorry to all of our listeners that it that it happened, but unfortunately, circumstances got the better of us. Yeah, I mean, um, you, you were you were ill. That's yeah. that's really a very 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 legitimate reason not to do a podcast. I I was ill at the only point we had available to record <laughs> within the two weeks we had to get the uh, the episode made. Yes, and uh, and while PJ, poor PJ, was kind of suffering uh, the the weekend where we could have done it, I was off uh, gallivanting at MCM Comic Con, uh, um, the first Comic Con I've done in two years. I feel. Yeah, I saw maybe two years. I saw the pictures, um, both y- yourself and Nick, and uh, also uh, Joe Glass was there, and a few other people I know as well, and it looked like everyone had a good time. I think so. I mean, we had a fantastic time. I mean, um, you never really know how it's going to go. I mean, we we did um, we've done a gaming convention back in July, hmm. where we went with um, the card game, and that was our first kind of you know show. Like you know, oh, we're back out in public, and that felt fine. I mean, we felt very safe. We felt very um, the organisers had done a really good job, and it was smaller as well, so it didn't feel quite as kind of crazy. And um, MCM is just, uh, as you know, it's just another level of insanity. And because um, it's in the, uh, the, obviously for benefit of anyone who's never been, uh, it's in the London Excel Centre, which is probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest convention centre in the UK. Yeah. Uh, it's about 900 metres long, I think. It is ridiculous. I cards on the table i've never actually been to an mcm oh have you uh, not? Oh, i'm sorry no i haven't but i did go and do the london super comic con when that was at the excel oh yes 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 of course yeah oh my god uh, when yeah 2012 something like that yeah it was a, a long time ago now myself yeah. and joe were there with stiffs i've never forgotten stiffs pj <laughs> neither a, have i it's a, it's a great book big fan of it that was my introduction of course to you Yes, yeah, that was that was what I was pushing the first day we met. Yeah, and uh, and listeners, it's been downhill ever since. Um, <laughs> and now we do a podcast talking about better comics. Oh, oh, um, no, peers, PJ, you're talking about one of your comic peers. Um, 
Actually, to no, be fair, some of the recent issues I would say are worse than my comics. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, I would say Skiffs is a very, very, very good comic. Actually, I'm not. If PJ, if PJ just stops listening for a minute, it's genuinely, oh. it's genuinely very good. Okay, PJ, <laughs> you, can, you can come back in now. Thank you. Um, One day we might finish it. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no, no. It'll, it'll be like um, uh, like a, a legacy thing. It'll be like a ten years later, twenty years later sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> mm. But the weirdest thing, well, the weirdest thing, PJ, and this was kind of like revolutionary, as someone who's been on the other side of a table like yourself, um, kind of like to combat COVID, everyone had been given a booth. It was... Oh. Yeah, it was really kind of amazing. Uh, and we were told not to get used to it because the moment the pandemic is deemed to be over, they'll be doing away with that in a flash. Um, the way it kind of works is they put um, dividing walls behind all of the Artist Alley tables. Um, it's formerly the Comic Village, it's now rebranded um, under new management. Mm. And uh, and so, yeah, we everybody had a, a kind of um, C-shaped, maybe like two meter deep um, unit to themselves, really, with the tables in it. And... Uh, Nick and I had a table each. We were we were in one of these, and um, it was really cozy. It was it was lovely actually, because normally you're always kind of incredibly cramped. You know, you're tripping yes. over each other. Yeah. Did that mean they they had less tables available to sell? Much less. Um, right. MCM has a lot of padding. Like there's generally. Uh, I, I should caveat this by saying I do actually enjoy MCM. Like it's very big. It's very commercial. But um, we've always done well at MCM. It's it's very vibrant, feels quite alive. I do enjoy it, despite, you know, the fact that there might normally be uh, like a hundred meter square stand devoted to mystery boxes or something. Yes, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but no, the Artist Alley, formerly the Comic Village, was much smaller and they spaced it out. So each, um, you know, each aisle you could have like driven a plane down. It was so wide. <laughs> Uh, which, in a weird way, COVID notwithstanding, actually made it feel quite pleasant. You know, you always you think to yourself, like, oh, I wish it was like this all the time. But of course, they're all about maximizing the floor space. So they want to pack more people in in the yeah, future. Yeah. Mm. Oh, God, yeah. And the central concourse mm. uh, is organized into north and south halls with this massive, well, for lack of a better word, a concourse running through the middle uh, lined with um, food scans which I think by weight might be the most expensive food on the planet. <laughs> you know, you're paying like nine quid for a bagel. Um, oh, it, well, London, yeah. and there's nowhere else for you to really go when you're at the table. So, No, if, you, if you're really smart, you would try and bring a packed lunch or something. But you just get kind of swept up in, in comic mm. con, you know, and then you're just like, oh, I just want food. You know, I'm just desperate for anything. Um real highlight of the show <laughs> was an amazing Indian street food stand, which was selling uh, these kind of like um, chicken uh, wrapped in a in a naan bread. Ooh. And uh, Nick and I had uh, a kind of romantic moment over how incredible those those wraps were, and we were like, "This this is the highlight of the show. This is the, <laughs> this is the moment." Nice. Oh, and um, apparently uh, Tom Hiddleston was there. Oh, really? Yes, apparently. Um, we didn't see it because, of course, we're stuck behind a table working. Uh, but we were chatting to someone, and apparently, news to us, there is an entire amphitheatre hidden 
in the Excel Center somewhere, which having gone there for 10 years, not aware of this, it can house 5,000 people. <laughs> what? And uh, yeah, it's down a mysterious corridor somewhere. Oh, wait. that. So back in the summer, I don't know if, if you or any of our listeners uh, really follow motorsport. <laughs> but, I think Venn diagram overlap. There might be some. Yeah, but um, Formula E, which is the mm. electric racing series that travels around the world and does street races, returned to London for the first time this year, and the track went through the XL. Did it actually? So did it happen this year? Yes. Ah, because we Lucy and I were we were we were watching some footage of it, like as they were prepping for it, like two years ago, and then it didn't yeah. go ahead. Yeah, it didn't. Um, this this is the first London race for years and years and years, and, and it was supposed to happen last year and didn't. Um, but yeah, it, it went sort of through this whole section. I think it's underneath the yes. the level that the conventions happen on, um, and that it looked like somewhere where you could pack in a lot of people. So maybe that's the amphitheatre area? Maybe so. I mean, because we were watching... It's funny you mentioned that, because we were quite fascinated by the existence of... Formula E, because we were like, oh my god, we're going through the Excel Center. We we know that really well, and there's always been because we've up until a couple of years ago, we we'd never driven uh, like a van into the vi- into the venue. We'd always kind of <laughs> set up from a car park below yeah. below it, and um, there was um, there's a mysterious road which you can drive onto, which gets you like onto the show floor. Hmm. And and in all the years of going, we've never worked out where it was. Like, how the hell do you physically get to it? And the time we drove in, it was fascinating because, like, yeah, they they lead your car down a separate way. There's a there's a hidden ramp. You go up it, and then you're on this kind of elevated highway going around the side of the Excel Center. Yes, and that's where some of the cars were going. It was really bizarre to see them. Like, oh yeah, I've been there. I've been there. Or they're they're currently driving through the interior of a venue where normally a table would be or i've yeah. seen where's there it's really <laughs> unusual yeah and they they managed to fit and in the entire uh, start finish straight the pits so all the team garages and everything and a couple of corners inside that section of the xl so yeah it would make sense if that's it i'm guessing that might be where they set up this amphitheater area yeah i I, I I gotta say, like I I do I I like the building. Uh, it, it constantly is is revealing new new mysteries, you know. To me, um, it's kind of like my home away from home, and it was nice to be back. Um, the possibly the most disappointing thing, and I'm a little salty about this even now, <laughs> is the um, the kind of um, lax quality control on the new Artist Alley in terms of stopping. Um, art print farms creeping in. Oh, really? Yeah. So, oh, like, wow. you know the ones where they just have a uh, hundred, uh, like, a stack of art prints of, like, un- characters they don't own the license to. Mm-hmm. And it's not like, oh, I'm drawing some fan art of his character. It's a machine, you know, and the artwork is completely different and they're just selling stuff they've essentially downloaded off Google. Yeah, and then printed for, like, 5p a sheet in their local whatever the print shop near them is called, and then sell for like 20 quid. Yeah, because there was a guy uh, t- uh, on our row, actually, and we were quite shocked because they, they used to be very strict on this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, he had a ton of um, anime prints 
being sold. And we were like, um, oh, well, that's, you know, a little unusual to see kind of such kind of blatant fan art um, and no original art. And we were like, well, maybe he did draw all of those. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. And then we had a closer look at his stuff and we were like, well, hang on a minute. That's official artwork from this one show. That's official artwork from this one video game. Hang on a minute. Hmm. You know, and, and in some cases, maybe he put like a filter on it. Yeah. You know, uh, but it was very clearly not his artwork. And um, I was I was a bit pissed off by it, actually. I was a bit like, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> you know, we have to jump through such hoops to get into the artist alley under the new criteria. You know, you have to, they're, they're really stringent. They're like, you've got to prove your credentials. You've got to prove you own your characters. And then it's just this guy just going for it. It was, yeah, a bit of a letdown, really. Yeah, that's odd. And it's a space that could be taken by someone who's genuinely creating something. That's, yeah, that's probably the most galling part. Someone lost out because of that guy. Yeah. We did try and complain because I'm a goody two-shoes. And, uh, <laughs> You're a snitch, John Locke. I'm a snitch, yeah. <laughs> I, I do well in prison, actually. Uh, and um, they basically, we were basically told by MCM that, like, um, it's not their job to enforce it. Um I think Trading it is. Sta- well, <laughs> not in their eyes. They said that in the UK, uh, trading standards have to come and investigate. It's not their job. Yeah, but surely if, if MCM get reported to trading standards for letting this happen, that looks badly on them. It does a bit, doesn't it? But yeah, that was that was a little that was a little disappointing. So but that's only because we're weird kind of principled idiots and, and for the most part it regarded like ignoring that we had a perfectly good show it was great but i was just like i was salty i was kind of like you know shooting daggers at him from my eyes every time i walked by <laughs> and as we record today i believe we are two weeks away from thought bubble returning as well yes indeed and pj i i, I haven't asked will you be there no oh. i I thought really long and hard about it, and I I just don't think I'm quite ready to actually go to a back to a convention yet. Mm. Um, I am a little bit sad that I'm not going because I basically everyone else is, <laughs> you know, all of our friends in the in the indie comics world are going. My entire D and D group, other than me, are going. So, <laughs> um, part of me is is a little bit FOMO. But then mm. I, I do genuinely think I'm not quite ready for that many people all in one place. So I'm I'm planning to definitely be at least at Thought Bubble, if not any other conventions next year, though. Well, that'll be amazing. I mean, it will be. I, I'm. I'll be sad not to see you, PJ, because I do feel that the last time we actually met in person was Thought Bubble 2018. Um, it might well have been. Uh. I, I didn't do the 2019 one because it was too close to my wedding. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> a, a fair reason, to be honest. Yeah, and have we seen each other since then? Well, no, I think I think you might be right. I, I, yeah, we've been doing. Yeah, we've been doing this podcast less time than we've actually. No, I'm wording this really badly, but yeah, like we've not seen we've not met in person for like three years. I think. Yeah. And we, we do need to rectify that. Yeah, we probably should just like say hello or something. You know, I've forgotten <laughs> what you look like because we 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 kind of like we um we record these with the camera turned off because <laughs> we don't we can't scan the sight of each other. I mean, especially uh, today, it's nine in the morning. <laughs> I know it's like the earliest we've ever recorded. Um, yeah, that's why we're so kind of vibrant. But 
But yeah, like the entire JLA cast history has taken place in a virtual setting, which is quite <laughs> it's quite unusual, really. Yeah, it is bizarre. It is bizarre. I do, I do respect, I do respect your um, your caution, though. I I have to say, like uh, as much as I very much enjoyed kind of getting back out there to a show, the um, there were times when I was walking along the MCM concourse, desperately trying to get to the water, you know, the drinking water fountain, so I could mm. uh, I could I could fill up my bottle. And it is like a, it's just a mad crush of people. Like even at like a reduced capacity, there were thousands of people there. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, ah, oh, I'm I'm I've got my mask on, but like I'm just absorbing people's sweat. Like this isn't good. Like <laughs> I was I was so convinced I was going to get a ping and that, that I'd be isolating now. But fingers crossed, still okay. I suppose you were lucky that there was like three weeks in between that and Thought Bubble, just in case you did get pinged. What's well, a very good point. I mean, when we did uh, when we did the UK Games Expo, mercifully it was right after uh, my friend Raymang's wedding. You know, and it's mm. just real kind of like, oh heck, like if we get pinged there, can we do one and do the other? It was really, yeah. Because again, I don't normally do things nowadays, you know, and then just suddenly they all come at once, and you're like, oh crap. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> you go you go eighteen months without going anywhere or doing anything, and now suddenly, yeah, you've got to be presentable and able to leave the house. Well, that's it, and I'm I'm finding as well that people keep on inviting me to things suddenly, and some of them I won't go to. I'll be like, no, not not really. Other ones, though, I'm like, oh, I will go to that, but it's leaving me less time to do the other stuff I've gotten used to doing while mm. I've not been going anywhere. <laughs> oh yeah, no, exactly. Um, I've I've become quite insular in like the last um, well, better part of two years, really, and yeah, uh, I've 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 enjoyed it in many ways, but. Like, uh, yeah, suddenly you're having to, like, make time for other people again. Yeah. Which is very weird. I've been quite selfish for the better part of, well, this whole thing. And even, you know, for most of the pandemic, new film releases, you were sometimes you'd have to pay extra for them, but they were available to watch at home. Like, we had a lovely evening on the sofa with a Chinese takeaway watching Godzilla vs. Kong <laughs> when, when that came out. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. But now they're going back to the, nope, just the cinema for now. So I had to go to the cinema to see Shang-Chi, to see uh, No Time to Die. After we record this, I'm going to the cinema to see Dune. And I'm like, you know, fine. I like the cinema, but I'd like the option to do these things at home sometimes. Dune I probably still would see in the cinema because it looks spectacular. But the other two I I probably would have watched at home. Quick question then, PJ. What time are you seeing June? Are we are we on a time limit here to get through this episode? Half three, so probably oh. not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we can keep it under like six and a half hours. I think we can do that. <laughs> I like the issue we're looking at today, but I don't think I could talk about it for that long. Um, well, how about then, PJ, in the interests of efficiency, and because we've never knowingly waffled or filled dead air <laughs> on this show... Um, should we should we uh, address a a listener letter that's coming? Yes, I love a listener letter. Well, this is coming from our friend of the show Nils in Sweden, who writes um, as we are. I'm, I'm paraphrasing Nils. You have to uh, forgive me here. Uh, as Kurt Busiek fans, he's referring to us, which uh, we are. He, uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on Astro City. The first story about Samaritan is the best Superman story that doesn't include the actual Superman. And that's just the first story in a huge creator-owned universe. So, PJ, Astro City. 
It's a great question. I, I, it really is. And I'm going to have to say, to my shame, I have not read much Astro City. It's one of those series that I've always been interested to check out and just never really got round to. I have read the first storyline Niels refers to there, but so many years ago that I really don't remember it now. And then after that, I've read like a one shot that came out in the mid 2000s. And then I think there was like a mini series that focused on villains or something that I read some of, but my memories of it are very, very hazy. And it's, it's a crime. I do need to go and dive into Astro City properly at some point. It's, it's been on my list of things I, I want to read for about 20 years. Yeah, Nils, I'm really sorry here. I, my, my answer's even shorter in that I haven't read any Astro City, which, which I, which I, I, like PJ, I fully admit is a failing on my part. It's always been there as one of the great series that I wanted to dive into. But I think in my head, and PJ, maybe because you're a little more knowledgeable than me, could you set me straight? Because in my head, I'm kind of conflating it with um, Top Ten by Alan Moore and Gene Ha. Right. Is yeah, I have similar? read some of that. Um. I think they did come out around the same time and they sort of deal with a similar-ish similar premise. Because um, the premise in top 10, at least, is, which I have read all of, is in a, in a, in a, a genre-aware world, so where you have not Marvel characters and not DC characters for legal reasons, superheroes pop up for all manner of reasons. They find magical hammers, they get bitten by spiders, some are mutants, some are time travellers every conceivable way of becoming a superhero uh all the superheroes live in one city because there are just mm. too many bloody superheroes and it's about the police department in a world in a city where everyone is a superhero yeah what's astro city by comparison then uh astro city it is fairly similar i think it is it is all these superheroes are in the same city but it is it's a more i'd say top 10 was a spoof I would say. Um, yes. I remember the hilarious scene where, like, a Galactus puppy comes down and and has a big fight with loads of little kitten Avengers or something. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and it's just stuck in my mind for so long. And one of the characters is a talking dog. And yes, they do the bestiality jokes. Astro City <laughs> takes it a lot more seriously. Astro City, rather than being a spoof, is sort of more of a, a critical pastiche, I guess of the traditional superhero stories and it's it's Busick yeah using it to tell the like the superman stories he'd never be allowed to tell with superman himself because i know Busick did a stint on action comics uh, again just after infinite crisis i want to say um and but this 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 is him being able to say this is what superman means to me but without actually using Superman and, and so doing things that DC maybe wouldn't let him do. Um, as I say, my memories of reading what I have read are very, very hazy, so I do need to dive into it again. But I do know it has lovely Alex Ross covers all throughout. But I think the thing with Astro City is it's not an ongoing series so much as a series of one-shots and mini-series. And it can be, I think one of the barriers for me of getting into Astro City is it can be quite difficult to know where to start and what order to read things in. Now, obviously with the internet these days, it'd be very easy to find that out, and I just haven't done that, so my bad. But it's it's interestingly structured, definitely. The um, It's really funny you mention 
the Alex Ross covers because my one and only understanding and uh, uh, contact with Astro City, which which I have to say did sow a kind of seed of fascination in my brain. Like I think in the back of my head, I've always been fascinated by Astro City, even though I've never read it, is on a family holiday, I picked up a wizard uh, special edition, which was all about Alex Ross. And it had a complete breakdown of his career and everything he'd worked on up until that point. And it had a big annotated section on all the Astro City covers. Yes, yes. I think we've mentioned before I've got that as well. And I do remember that. In fact, I remember the holiday I bought that on, I I think it was 1998, maybe 99. And I was staying with a friend's family in, in Chicago when I bought it. And... My friend's dad was was a comic reader. He had a, a, a curated selection of graphic novels, let's say. But um, seventeen year old me wasn't allowed to touch them because I might damage them. So it was you weren't allowed to read his graphic novels. He was like, "No, you can't touch these." But I know he had Astro City on on that shelf. It's weird, isn't it? I mean, I, surprising nobody because we're doing a we're doing a podcast about a um, twenty three twenty four year old comic series. But even just talking about that Wizard magazine right this second, I'm getting a powerful burst of nostalgia mm. for a time in comics where there were many, many flaws, let's be honest. Yeah. But you could legitimately publish a magazine about comics as if they were an art form. You know what I mean? Like, Or there was a culture around it. And yeah. of course, it is an art form and there is a culture around it. But... It was like it was like um, boom days, wasn't it? Like no one ever imagined that comics were gonna kind of lose their way a little bit, and you know, yeah, because of course Wizard obviously went away, and the days now nowadays, like it's very unlikely that you get a magazine like Wizard, which could do a whole feature just about one artist. It's it's wild to me. Yeah, we do have um, comic scene in the UK, but that feels quite different to me. Yeah, I think it's drawing its origins more from the the British side, yeah. kind of side approach to comics, which is very different, a bit more cynical, I think, the um, 2000 AD warrior sort of period. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, Wizard did have flaws. There were definitely, within itself, Wizard wasn't <laughs> always a perfect <laughs> magazine. Uh, but I did enjoy some of the things they do with it, and I did like buying it. I didn't buy it every month, but occasionally I'd go, oh, I'm just going to check out Wizard this month, and they'd release some specials that I'd I'd, I'd get as well here and there. So, Could you actually yeah. get it in the UK? Only in uh, the specialist comic shops. Or I think Forbidden Planet stocked it as well. But This is going back to our... The weird, the weird very niche experience of growing up in the UK in kind of like rural UK in the 90s and where you're like, where do I get this gold dust, which is American comics? And they're so weird and odd and I can't get hold of them. Because, yeah, I only ever encountered Wizard on a family holiday to America, you know, and I I loved that one issue I owned. It's like a treasured item, which I don't currently know where it is, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Mine's somewhere in... In this house, I've I've at least dug out the Wizard JLA special that I got around the same time as well. I know where mm. that is. Yes, I think mine's probably at my old family house actually. So, <laughs> yeah, I should probably dig that out at some point. 
Um, but yet, Nils, um, we're very sorry for this glaring gap in our knowledge. We know we're bad people. Um, but I, I'm going to thank you, actually, because I, I think you've actually inspired me to finally track down Astro City. I think I'm going to do it. Yeah, I mean, I went through a big phase of, of getting everything on Comixology because of space reasons, but now I'm sort of back on, a, actually, I quite like physical things, so I might see if I can get a physical copy of, of whatever the first volume of Astro City is and just dive in. Well, for a long time, I was trying to collect the um, quote-unquote kind of great series, if you know what mm -hmm. I mean. Like, mm -hmm. I was I was trying to have this perfect representation of what I thought comics were which was basically like all the stuff that came out in like the 80s uh you know early 90s like by by in hindsight a very small pool of creators you know <laughs> this this idea that like this was the whole of fame of comics which i i think in hindsight was a very kind of like um reductive way of looking at comics it's, it's a lot more kind of diverse and interesting now but I stopped that a while ago, and I think maybe that's kind of why I never got around to reading Astro City. I, but I think I'm going to pick that up again and try and track it down. Hard same. Let's do it. Let's do it. That'll be the next. That'll be another spin-off podcast, PJ. The Astro City uh, Chronicler. <laughs> John and PJ read it for the first time. Yes, actually, no. This is good. We'll be completely fresh and um, <laughs> uncorrupted. So, thank you, Nils, for creating another project for us. Um, yes, something we don't have the time for, but we're definitely going to do now. Definitely going to do, and we'll <laughs> never disappoint anybody ever. Um, but PJ, 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 it feels like an age. We skipped, yeah. an, we skipped an issue, but where the hell are we and what the hell is happening in DC 1 million? Well, we have just read uh, DC 1 million issue three. Uh, wait, no, I have a spreadsheet. I mean, you're right. Yeah, I just want to confirm it. Yes. <laughs> Yes, it's DC One Million Part Three. Good, I'm I'm glad. And the JLA and Justice Legion A have created Solaris in the past, and they've defeated Vandal Savage in the past. So that's all all well and good. Huntress has an idea about how to get there. The members of the JLA that are trapped in the far flung future back to the present and return the Justice Legion home. But we have cut away from there, and we're going to start with another one of those info dump uh, text pages that this this collection likes to give us in place of actual comics, which I'm still in two minds about, because one part of me is like, yeah, if you added in all these comics, this book would be much too big and we would be covering it for years. But at the same time, there's it's economy of storytelling is one thing, but it's just a bit dull, isn't it? PJ was absolutely insistent that we... PJ's been keeping us honest about these data dumps, to be honest, because I think I probably would have breezed over them. But we're going to do it. This is the second data dump, or the digi... Print. Third, I think. The third. I Time is meaningless, PJ. I have no idea what's going on anymore. <laughs> because they um, do contain important information that, that is key to the rest of the book. That's why they're in here, but yeah. Yes. But, okay, so PJ, um, king of the data... What should we dive into this data dump? Let's do it. So this one starts with uh, we're back in the far future. In the eyes of a trillion sentients, the JLA were imposters, trapped in the eight hundred and fifty-third century and fighting for their lives. The twentieth-century JLA's first order of survival was to convince a sceptical galaxy that they were not imperfect bizarro duplicates, relics of a bygone plague responsible for centuries of death and terror. We have seen none of that. But again, the weirdest 
weirdest thing about what DC One Million to me is how much of it is referenced in All Star Superman. Yeah, <laughs> it is wild to me that this slightly flawed series was clearly like Morrison just road testing all these wild ideas for Superman that they'd pick up again later in a critically beloved series. It's, it's insane to me. <laughs> so it continues. Wally West, The Flash, aided by a possible heir to his legacy in the 853rd century and an aged Captain Marvel still alive after centuries in stasis on the Rock of Eternity helped debunk the Bizarro Plague while routing an attack on the planet Mercury's complex information-based Econonet by data terrorists Commander Cold and Heatwave. There are a lot of words in that <laughs> paragraph. <laughs> that it's That's a lovely paragraph, actually. I love it. It's so stupid and weird. And I kind of would have liked to see that Flash adventure with an old Captain Marvel. Yeah, because you see this elderly Captain Marvel with a big beard in a few panels in an upcoming issue. Mm. And a bearded superhero is a look I have time for. It's weird. There was an era, I think in maybe the late noughties, when the Punisher had a beard. (laughs) And I honestly don't think Frank Castle's ever looked better than in those issues. (laughs) The only character I think should never have a beard is Mr. Fantastic. Not a fan of that look. It's weird to me. <laughs> I don't mind. I don't mind that. Well, I don't think a beard a... would work on Spider-Man. You'd have to put it outside his mask. Oh, no. I mean, f- I was wearing a mask for like three days at MCM, and my beard was... <laughs> it wasn't good. It was disgusting. Um, But yes, a lot going on in that paragraph, which ultimately is kind of... While it would have been nice to see... Uh, it isn't really contributing anything to 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 our understanding of the story, perhaps. No, but we could have had it instead of the Starman issue. Well, uh, indeed. Well, uh, moving on, PJ. Um, <laughs> anyway, the Bizarro Plague Scare, the sabotage of the JLA's planetary challenges, the galaxy-wide turmoil was quickly revealed to be all the tyrant Sun Solaris is doing, which we've known since the beginning. While the time-lost JLA fought to prevent Solaris's mad schemes from succeeding, another hero with origins in the 20th century did his part. Mitch Shelley, the so-called Resurrection Man and one of just a handful of present-day heroes to survive into the 853rd century, made his way to the red planet Mars determined to confront Solaris's ally and Shelley's eternal foe, Vandal Savage, also very much alive in the year 85271 AD. My favourite part of that is only a handful of people survived for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. I'm like, that's that's quite a lot. <laughs> if five people survive that long, that's that's a crazy number of people. And of course, I mean, this is the. Um, it's almost like there's a, a mathematical rule or a thesis or something that could be applied to superheroes, where if you are a superhero at least one of your companions will live to be a million years old. You know, it yeah. doesn't matter whether it's a magical artifact or time stasis or uh, a quirk of genetics. It just happens. If you go on a time travel adventure, you will meet one of your buddies and they've never aged. Or they are really, really old and decrepit and a bit grumpy now. But one of those two things, definitely. <laughs> and they'll still be wearing the same costume. Yes, they haven't washed it. In a weird way. If they haven't watched it, it looks kind of... In a Marvel comic, it's usually Wolverine. Oh, God, yeah. It's always Wolverine. (laughs) It's always bloody Wolverine. Anyway, but uh, but PJ, which which leads us very neatly into 
another uh, side step, another kind of odd little um, tie-in, I suppose, which yeah. Is, yeah, is included because it is very relevant to the plot in a weird way, but it still seems odd that we go on this diversion. It, it, yeah, I, I have a lot of mixed thoughts about the issue we're about to cover, Resurrection Man issue one million, and it's an issue I, when I reread it, I was worried because a lot of DC one million hasn't held up as much as I would have liked it to have when I've reread it. I've enjoyed a lot of it, but looking at it more critically, I've been a bit, oh, actually, some of it doesn't quite work. I really enjoyed rereading Resurrection Man 1 million. It might be my favourite issue from this collection that I have reread so far. Well, should we set the scene a little bit on Resurrection Man? Uh, I didn't do any extra research, so I've only uh, got what we said last time. <laughs> well, I, I did um, uh, a tiny bit of... Um, I've been culturally aware of Resurrection Man. I did a tiny bit of reading around the character, and I read a few issues of his original series, which is actually quite hard to work out because, of course, he got New 52'd. Mm. And so there's like there are many Resurrection Man's issue Wong's sort of thing. Um, but... The weirdest thing is that Resurrection Man was a very, very, very new character at this point. Because this issue came out in kind of like November 1998, I think. Let me check my Yes, spreadsheet. I also am just going to say I loved the phrase there, he got new 52'd. <laughs> <laughs> he, got, he got new 52'd hard. Um, uh, but yeah, so Resurrection Man uh, debuted in, in May 1997. So uh, not much older then this actual series was very much like a hot new property at this time. It's only five, six months. You only had like five issues before this. <laughs> and given that Morrison um, plotted every single issue of the New 52 event, all the tie-ins, um, it, it, it's not a coincidence is what I'm badly trying to say, that, that Resurrection Man ends up kind of becoming pivotal to the plot in a weird way. That's, that's a choice Morrison made. Like Morrison clearly liked this new character and wanted to do something interesting with them. That's my read on it anyway. I, I genuinely feel like this issue is the best example of other writers taking the plot Morrison has given them and running with it. Hmm. Uh, like to the point where you can sort of see the Morrison influences in this one, but also... I think um, it's Dan Avnet and Andy Lanning who who write this, and and yeah, just they they do a great job, and I think it's 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 potentially three writers working in perfect harmony. Yeah, and I think it's maybe interesting that with Resurrection Man being such a new character at this point in DC continuity, uh, the creators, uh, the, the creative team on that book had a very strong vision for the character. You know, it didn't have that kind of historic legacy. And so it wasn't like, oh, this is just another era of a character or it's just kind of like kind of Monster of the Weeky kind of adventures. There was a vague plot to Resurrection Man. Like it, it was new. It was still in the early days. And so I, maybe that's why it stands out a bit more because, yeah, the character was so fresh in a way. Mm. That's just my kind of read on it. I, I don't I don't really know. Also, I'm just going to say, I really like Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. I think they're underrated as writers, but I, ev everything I read by them, I usually really enjoy. 
and I, I think it's criminal that they often then get shuffled off bigger books to bring in a big name for a <laughs> reboot or something. Uh, quite often, it feels. But yeah, I think I think they are very accomplished writers. They've put out some very good stuff. Well, do you remember PJ? We had a vague little conversation about um, immortal superheroes. I think at the end yeah. of our last last episode, and I was getting a few confused. Um, the one interesting little tidbit I picked up about Resurrection Man is that he was directly inspired by Abnett and Lanning's work on uh, the Great Lakes Avengers. Oh, really? Yes, where, of course, there was the character of Mr. Immortal. They wanted to do an immortal character, but uh, the idea was that they wanted to make it a bit more interesting. And so they introduced the idea that every time the Resurrection Man dies and comes back to life, as per his name, he gains a new superpower. It's like a kind of dial H for hero sort of thing. Give it a spin. Yeah, but he he loses the power he had previously, doesn't he? So it's yes. a completely new set of whatever the power is when he when he comes back to life. And more a more serious take on it, let's say, than Mister Immortal in the Great Lakes Avengers. <laughs> yes, indeed. Which of course is another slight gap in my knowledge as well. The Great Lakes Avengers, although I know them more through their cameos and tyings in the Avengers. Um, but yeah, I've, I've I mean, read it's their two thousands mini series. Uh, they've had a couple. I've read a couple of those and some crossovers with Deadpool, but I'm not overly familiar with them prior to that. The I think the interesting thing to me about uh, Resurrection Man in this context is that I read a couple of issues of his solo series, and um, I think at that point maybe it was an odd little point to jump in. He was a little unsure about his own origins, like he didn't really know how he had these powers or what was going on. And okay. you kind of, and you kind of got the impression that like he'd um only recently discovered these powers and everyone was like wondering, well, who the hell is this guy? How can he do this? He's not really a hero, but he interacts with heroes, that sort of thing. And there was like a hint that he might be like related to Vandal Savage. Okay. Like, yeah. Um but apparently uh, the series had a lot of mysteries in it and it was never fully resolved because it kind of cancelled before they explained everything. But um, yeah, it kind of ended up by suggesting that him and Vandal Savage, he was actually much, much, much older than he thought he was. And him and his char- him and Vandal Savage have been battling each other across history for a lot of time. Well, I think they get into a little bit of that in this issue, don't they? So shall we dive also- in? Yes, yes, let's do it, PJ. So, um, it's for future, PJ, the distant future. Yeah, we open with a, a lovely splash page of Mitch Shelley, the Resurrection Man, and just a, a, a very nice, simple costume. So he's sort of just a black onesie, effectively, with a big collar and like some kind of coat tails coming off <laughs> the back of it. Uh, I re- it's a striking visual. He's got like chrome boots and a belt, and then red massive gauntlets. hair. Long white hair, it's great, and he's got this 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 red device on his left arm, which sort of connects up to uh, a device sort of over his heart with uh, uh, an image of the uh, was it the the Vitruvian Man? Yes, indeed. On there, um, and I don't know because this is the only issue of Resurrection Man I've ever read. If that is anything close to his look in his normal book, <laughs> or if no, this was an update? No, n- not at all. In fact, this is probably. Uh, one good example of the passage of time having an effect on it on the character almost like the entire point of him originally was that he didn't dress like a superhero oh okay he kind of dressed like a 
more like a bum, for lack of a better word. Like he, he was always wearing kind of like shabby clothes, maybe like a hat if he was feeling fancy. But it was a, meant to be a direct juxtaposition that he was just some guy, but then also his Supergirl or something like that. So clearly in a million issues, he's become more comfortable being a superhero as such, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, cool. I was hoping that that would be the case and that he wasn't one of those people just wearing the same clothes. Was his hair still really long in the past? No, no. It was it was it was long but more like normal human long rather than down like, to his ankles. Down to his ankles basically, <laughs> yeah. So we've got this lovely splash page of of Resurrection Man and uh basically he's catching us up. He's he's recording what he knows on the device on his chest because the symbol also appears in the caption boxes, that's how we know. And basically saying, oh, Solaris has gone bad. Well, that's that's a problem. Uh, Solaris thinks that earlier versions of the JLA, the ones from the 20th century, they're going to be easy to defeat. They're not. He's wrong. Uh, I remember the 20th century pretty clearly. Yeah, and um, I guess the interesting thing is that it mentions that uh, as the Resurrection Man, he is a strategist for the Justice Legion. So mm. in all this time, not only has he become more of an outright superhero, uh, he's he's become a member of the future version of the League. And I guess if you had a dude on your team who was genuinely, uh, what, like 85,000 years old or something, he probably would be quite a good strategist to have around. You would hope so. You would hope so. And <laughs> as we turn the page, BJ, we discover that we are on... Um, Mars, I believe. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we, we get a lovely double-page splash now of, of Resurrection Man flying over Mars towards a dust storm. Uh, we get the title here, Handful of Dust, and the credits, as we've said. Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning did the story. Butch Geist, the art. Carla Feeney, the colours. Ken Lopez, the letters. Uh, Maureen McTighe, uh, one million, was the assistant <laughs> editor. And Eddie Berganza was the editor. Yeah, and we get this kind of, um, as BJ said, like this 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 wild like double page spread of um, uh, Mitch kind of like flying above the surface of Mars. There's a massive kind of like dust storm up ahead, um, and the the artwork by uh, Butch uh, Guice Guice. I'm Guice? not sure how it's pronounced. I I sorry, Butch. Um, it it is the to me like the quintessential kind of like I know this is the nineties. But it feels like kind of 80s superhero artwork in a way. Like yes. it's very dark. It's very detailed. It's very sketchy. It's not outright heroic in the way that, say, like Howard Porter is. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does completely. There's there's a, a grittiness to it as well. Um, there's, there's some sort of a lot of extra lines here and there. And and with the colouring and the inks as well, it, it feels more lived in, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's um, yeah, if yeah, it's like um, if you get like Howard Howard's work or kind of Val Somek's work, it feels like a comic book, and this feels kind of more real world, kind of like dirty in a way, but not in a bad way. I'd say it. it it's the difference between the superhero comics and the indie books in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. This feels like uh, almost like a Vertigo title or something. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because to kind of 
well, I don't know, Morrison loves a big caption, but I was going to say, there's a lot of text on this page. Like, um, it's quite wordy. And uh, we switch from... <laughs> we, and you can tell we switch because you get slightly different text, uh, slightly different <laughs> font. But we switch from Mitch kind of like recording a... Like a... I don't know, like a report, like a, a situation kind of report through his suit to his inner thoughts. Uh, and... His, it's, 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 it's wordy in both regards, but yeah, he's basically he's well, he explains that he's travelled to Mars to confront Solaris's main co-conspirator and his oldest foe. Message ends, and then we learn that he has boom tube technology woven into his clothes, which is quite nice. Yeah, I like that. That's uh, a lovely little detail, um, which has transported him to Mars in a heartbeat. And then he just he he waits in the air for a bit with the. Uh, dust dry wind tugging at him and he thinks well this is this it is this the last battle and he feels tired which i think you would after so long <laughs> i guess it's the horrible repetition of knowing like it's like having a roommate you're not really a fan of and it's like but you're both stuck in this arrangement like he's just like oh god it's vandal again like again <laughs> i'll never be rid of him i'm very 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 old and I'm about to fly into an artificially generated storm, which has probably been predictably made by Vandal Savage. Sorry, everyone, spoilers, Vandal Savage, <laughs> uh, to stop him communicating uh, with anybody outside of it. So he knows he might be going in for his final battle, basically. Yeah, and once he does enter the storm as well, he's cut off from the rest of the universe. He won't be able to communicate out to whichever members of the Justice Legion are still out there. He's he's on his own. Hmm. And um, before he flies into uh, before he flies into the the, the kind of the cloud, uh, he gets a quick call from Arsenal of the Teen Titans. Presumably not the same <laughs> Arsenal. <laughs> Presumably not. Uh, and uh, says, uh, "Yeah, kind of, um, you know, come come and help me. You know, I'm I'm going in alone." And um, and he says how Arsenal sounds scared because everyone respects Mitch so much and they know he's like the oldest guy in the world and he's never asked for help before. So this must be the real deal. Uh, but he does also mention that he uses his tech-tite cloak around him for protection. And uh, for context, the tech-tites are the uh, nanotech things in his body which allow him to uh, resurrect. And clearly... In these 85,000 years, he's gained much greater control over them. Yeah, they, that's what the coattails on his costume on the first page are. It's this, these two sort of streams of these tectites that allow him to fly through the storm. And you sort of see them fly out behind him as he flies off. But later on in the issue, they will sort of disappear, presumably absorbed back into his costume or his body. Yeah, and... Um... As he approaches uh, his destination, he also explains some other upgrades he's made over the years, where um, the device that PJ mentioned he wears on his wrist uh, kind of contains like an alien worm with like uh, a, a, an utterly lethal bite. And so he can just kind of press a button, instantly kill himself, uh, and then resurrect. But um, he, he has the, he can now pick and choose the powers he gets. Like, uh, it's not random like it used to be? 
Yeah, he says he can pick one custom power from his many lives, so it feels like he only has access to powers he's had before, but presumably by this point, it's been so many years, he's had them all. And, and, and he always keeps the nice default background powers of, like, flight and strength, which, mm. I mean, frankly, I mean, you would. Yes. You? I mean that that that's just that's just good good common sense really. Um and using the Ionic Ray, which he's picked out, which is kinda of like, you know, it's nice having like having your favourite kind of toy. He's like, Oh, I, li- I like that one, I'll use it. Um he's kind of blasting at some of uh the kind of like Martian digging robots which Vandal Savage has set on him. And uh, it's a nice little touch where he says, uh, this obviously isn't a threat. You know, this is easy. This is like a warm-up. And he says, Savage always does this. It's like shaking hands or saying hello. He sings like a, a hopeless minion at you just to let you know he's there, which I think is quite nice. Yes, and there's there's a lot of little references throughout this as well to previous things that obviously we've never seen, but I really like. Like, he mentions the data wars on Mu Pegasi 1,600 years ago. He says... Um, the, with the, it's like shaking hands with Vandal Savage. Of course, we don't do that anymore. Not since the incident with the tailored <laughs> gene plague. So. Well, I mean, you wouldn't, PJ. I mean, obviously. <laughs> and um, as I mean, and we do get a nice little uh, kind of callback here, where um, we see Vandal Savage, and he's he's chilling out. He's wearing his kind of like um, autumn collection kind of like nice <laughs> uh, kind of comfortable robes. He's got an eye patch. Uh, remember because of, you know, what Jean did to him in the past. Mm-hmm. And uh, he sets an hourglass timer, and he pours a glass of Chateau Lafitte Rothschild 1847, which um, we uh, we saw him drinking in the past as well. Yes, uh, for a DC 1 million issue 1, I believe. He had it both as a younger Vandal Savage, who was like, this wine is terrible, and then an older Vandal Savage said, this wine's really good. As a... Um, as someone who's dabbled in home brewing uh, a couple of times, I find it amazing that any glass, any bottle of wine could survive 85,000 years and still be drinkable, where like my homemade cider turned to vinegar in like two weeks. Oh, so we're not going to get the, uh, in, in the year, whatever, 85,271, we're not going to have the, uh, the, the John Locke 2021 vintage available to us. No, the 2020 vintage, Vintage was the one that turned to, to vinegar. The 2021 vintage is the one which was the driest liquid I have ever produced. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was refined, but my God, it was like like eating a mouthful of sand. It was just so oh. painfully dry. <laughs> Lovely. Hey, but he's got a he's got a um he's got a Diddy Solaris. He's got like a little Solaris hologram with him, which is which is yes. nice. Yeah, like a little like a Pokemon. So he he offers a, a glass of the wine to Mitch, basically saying this this is our last, this is the the end of it, whatever happens now. Um, and then the Solaris hologram, which is apparently a projection of the real Solaris, is like, no, you don't be nice to this guy. He's he's your enemy. And Savage says, look, this is we're we're old friends because we've known each other so very very long, even though we're arch enemies. And I'm going to be nice to him before I kill him. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit presumptuous, I feel, to say this is definitely our last meeting. I mean, you know, he's probably said that a lot over the course of... Villains are always saying it. 
I know, I know. He's a bit a bit presumptuous. Um, but, um, hey, PJ, guess what? You know that kind what? of green mystery rock? And we've been completely skumped as to what it is. They said uh, it was kryptonite in the last issue. Yeah, but I've got a really short memory, and, and Mitch wasn't there. <laughs> but but it's kryptonite. He's got, he's got a big chunk of kryptonite. And uh, he, it's the night fragment, the thing he was digging up on Mars. Which Solaris is very impatient about. He wants it now. But Van's like, look, I'm ending this transmission. Go away, tiny Solaris. And then shows the kryptonite to Resurrection Man and says it's the last piece in the universe and the one thing that will end the Superman dynasty forever. And it's nice to have a villain who just takes pride in their work. I mean, it's also interesting to note that, of course, for Vandal Savage, we saw uh, in the past the young Vandal Savage, because he was only like 20,000 years old or something. Mm. Um, he uh, was a bit deranged because of the, you know, the Yawaman virus. And this is a very um, kind of chill, quite a kind of calm Vandal Savage. Like, uh, as he says, he's enjoying his work. Whereas Mitchell, who's been alive pretty much for the same amount of time, is not enjoying his work. He, he, is, he is tormented by existence, basically. He's old and he's tired. <laughs> he's probably died thousands and thousands of times at this point as well. Yeah, and we kind of get, um, apart from just being, you know, a glorious chaotic evil villain um vandal savage is like look you know i'm happy to kill superman and amuse myself and bring about the end of the universe or whatever but i also just really want to kill you like i i that's really my kind of primary goal i you know i just want this to end so um he presses a diddy little button and suddenly uh his body is transformed as armor appears all around it uh it is gloriously 90s it is an omicron knife suit um, <laughs> Illegal in 78 systems Kind of looks like um, A background character In say like a Youngblood Comic maybe He'd be called like uh, oh, I don't know, Knifey. He'd be called, Knifey Like uh, uh, Knife Edge Or something like that Or uh, <laughs> Whetstone um, And uh, yeah he's like purple all over uh, With circuitry and he's just covered in knives Like it's it, It's literally a knife suit It's kind of amazing it's 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 ridiculous and brilliant all at the same time. <laughs> uh, it's also uh, apparently Omicron knife suits are illegal in seventy eight systems. Yeah, that's how dangerous they are. <laughs> and he says this is going to be painful for you. And Resurrection Man just says I am used to pain. And they rush at each other. And then we get a black page. Uh, yes, which uh, may have been an advert for possibly a uh, sneaker. Or uh, maybe um, milk. They were they, there was always adverts for milk in like the nineties. In American oh comics. yeah, yeah. You'd have like the DC one was just a drawing of Superman with a milk mustache, wasn't it? Oh, can, I I could do a whole podcast about my dislike of the milk mustache. That's <laughs> ah, I, ugh, ugh. Um, but yeah. So, uh, but they um they just they go to town on each other. They just, they, you know, there's punches, there's slashes, there's laser ble- laser beams. Um, apparently also the Omicron knife suit can um, shoot Blakes uh, and um, old Mitchell gets um, stabbed through the chest. Yep. It's not entirely clear which part of the suit that knife has come out of, but just assume anywhere. Uh, yeah, you, you can just kind of spawn them. Um, and then we transition from the two of them just beating the crap out of each other dressed like superheroes to 
quite a cool double-page spread. I love this. Of, um, well, I don't know what you call it, like a montage, like a flashback, like a reflection. And we kind of see this same scene just played out over and over again. Yeah, you have images of, of Mitch and Vandal Savage fighting throughout the centuries. So there's like a 1920s gangster one. There's a, a image of them falling from a Zeppelin, one where Mitch is in a much more traditional superhero costume with a cape and a symbol on his chest and a mask, and Vandal is also wearing a mask and skin-tight outfit, and Superman's there, because why not? Um, yeah, they're like um, uh, throttling each other to death, um, I don't know, while wearing war paint and armour, um, throttling each other to death while um, on a on a pirate ship. Um, they're roaming centurions, um, like uh, uh, maybe like desert warriors, like somebody with a spear. Like um, they've done this a long, long, long time. And we uh, we basically get a list from from Mitch. He says. Uh, on the shores of Sirius, in the glass swamps of Zeta Sagittarii, in Atlantic trenches, in the back streets of Antwerp, in the living forests of Canopus, in the sweat dens of Brazzaville. And just tells us about so many different encounters where he cut Vandal's heart out in the Californian holocausts. Vandal trapped him on an airless sphere in Fornax for ten weeks. <laughs> Vandal uh, killed Mitch's daughter in Beijing once. Yeah, um... Also, uh, Mitchell, uh, Mitch burned him to death at the stake once. Um, uh, it was a nice thing where he says, once tired and cold, we were nearly friends for a few hours, which I kind of, I kind of like, actually. like the idea that if you've done this so long, even your enemy is the only constant in your life. You probably are friends in like a <laughs> yeah. weird way. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's- and it just kind of... It's kind of cementing this idea of the two of them being this kind of eternal dichotomy, like uh, Savage and Shelley, Shelley and Savage, immortals, eternals, adversaries. Um, and he says he's fought him so long that he's tired of the fight and he's tired of life, really. Like, it's it's just it's just a long, bloody slog. It's It's a classic idea, isn't it? Two immortal beings battling each other through the centuries, just all over the world, and and I think it's one that is done really, really well here. Yeah, and I, it's kind of given how well this kind of like um, cements the relationship between the two. Um, it's weird that DC also has um, the Immortal Man, who kind mm. of is another immortal hero who kind of also plays the same role with um, Vandal Savage in a way. Like... Um, I don't know. It feels like almost um, a shame that like they have two people kind of doing the same thing in a way. I wonder if, if yeah. that's why Mitch hasn't made a bigger impact. You know, maybe editorial just kind of like pushed him aside a bit over the years. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe they needed a different immortal villain. But <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, but uh, Mitch says you know, despite being kind of like tired of life, he always gets more life because he just keeps resurrecting. And, uh, yeah, the two of them take, like, uh, a little pause in the battle. And uh, Savage says, uh, you know, I haven't killed you in a while. Is it, like, um, 800 years or so? And Mitch says, you must be getting sloppy, which is, uh, which is again, quite nice. Yeah. And uh, Savage says, this knife suit here, though, this it's it's so sharp, 
that it's going to sever your soul from your body and even your powers won't bring you back to life. So I'm going to kill you once and for all here. That's how sharp this suit is. And it's pretty sharp. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, Mitchell's like, well, why do we keep doing this? You know, it's, you know, it's pointless. But Savage is like, no, no, no. This is definitely going to be the final battle we have. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah. And then, and then Savage starts kind of faltering and like uh, he's in pain and, his 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 Omicron knife suit is bleeding off his body, and uh, Mitch says that it's a it's a new trick he tried where he sacrificed some of his some of his tectites, some of these nano machines, forced them into Savage, and by sacrificing them, he was able to disable the knife suit at an atomic level. So, yeah, Mitch is feeling um, pretty um, chipper because he thinks he he's got the 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 upper hand on him. And then Savage says that one line that no hero needs to hear. Good, just what I hoped you'd do. And it turns out he just wanted a sample of the Tektites all along because he can then reconfigure them to take Resurrection Man's structure apart a molecule at a time. Yeah, and this looks kind of horrendous, actually. And Mitch screams as his body is, like, literally disintegrating. In a yeah. way, but I guess his um, his you know he he doesn't just turn to dusk. It's like he's kind of just writhing on the floor. I assume because his resurrectiony powers are kind of like trying to battle the fact that he's being taken apart, and it's yeah, it just looks insanely painful. Yeah, he's he's screaming. It's it's deeply unpleasant, and Savage is just standing over him and smiling, <laughs> saying, and you were expecting help, but I think the Teen Titans have run into one of my deja vu minds now. And then we get a page that I absolutely love, which is basically the same panel over and over again of these future Teen Titans jumping through a boom tube and, and saying, oh, he must already be inside the storm. And it just keeps happening. <laughs> it's great. I am a massive sucker for comics when they play around with time mm. because you can do some really interesting things in the comic medium with time travel and Morrison has and many times I know this isn't Morrison I'm just I just like to bring them up occasionally in this podcast about their work and um yeah no I agree PJ this is delightful this weird future version of the Teen Titans endlessly caught in a in a panel loop it, it's it's quite fun it's a nice little moment yeah <laughs> And I guess a weird detail, um, I'm assuming that there is a member of the this future version of the Teen Titans who looks identical to Wonder Woman 1 million. I have to assume that's meant to be like Donna Troy 1 million in a yeah, way? Yeah, Wonder Girl 1 million, I would assume. I presume there was a, a Teen Titans 1 million issue. Um, but yes. Yeah, so in which you would have gotten to know these characters potentially. But so you might know who they were, but yeah, that's all I can assume as well is that that is the one million Wonder Girl. Yeah, we're bad people. We're not going to read that issue, but we'll. No, they're they're, they're trapped in a deja vu loop, so it doesn't it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, and and poor uh, poor Mitchell, uh, he's covered by kind of like Kirby Crackle, uh, kind of by black dots. He looks absolutely agonised uh, as the uh, disassemblers take him apart. And old Vandal Savage picks up, uh, uh, he's looking at like his collection, like he's, you know, he's got uh, a sword that Hannibal gave him as a wedding present. <laughs> so he goes to uh, just, uh, you know, deliver the killing blow to Mitch, only for Mitch to teleport 
in a perfect sphere, which uh, cuts off Savage's arm. And um, despite blood pouring out of his face, Mitch is alive because he teleported and left the disassemblers behind. Oh, and Vandal's arm. In Into strata space, apparently. So that's... He's... Yeah, Mitch isn't looking good, but he's at least now not being disassembled. And Vandal says, I've had that sword for 80,000 years. I can grow another arm, though. <laughs> and... um. At that exact moment, do you remember the hourglass which uh, Savage put on the table? Uh, it rungs out, and at that moment, uh, old Shelley, despite thinking you know he's he's back, he's back on the up and up, um, he collapses again in agony, and um, it turns out Savage had yet another plan up his sleeve. <laughs> he's a clever boy, that Vandal Savage. He's a very clever fellow, but it turns out that the storm contained the sandstorm contained uh, a single grain of sand which was a dedicated biomech virus that savage uh designed and it has uh basically entered mitch's resurrection device and has been overwhelming it while they've been battling hence savage was just keeping him busy so now he's taken control of the resurrection device and has set it to endlessly kill him basically. So he's taking advantage of his own resurrection powers. This is how he's defeating him. Mitch will now just die over and over and over again, instantly and endlessly. So this is his victory, I suppose. And and Vandal says, look, this is as close to death as you're ever getting, so this is what you wanted. I've I've just done you a favour. So now I'm going to go. I've got the night fragment. I've got my keys. He actually <laughs> says, night fragment, keys, yes. And, it's, and then just teleports out using a boom tube and as he teleports out he opens the force shield uh, which was keeping the storm out and um, Mitch is kind of left um, on uh, on the face of Mars in a raging sandstorm endlessly dying um, and screaming in agony basically yeah it's a really grim page of Mitch like five panels of Mitch dying over and over again as the storm sort of overtakes him and he says death at long last like the breaking waves of the sea the storm invades dust covers dust there is a voice in the sand the voice of an old friend the voice of Mars if he could smile at the sound of it he would but the dead do not smile the and that's end. the end and that's the end everybody <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, poor Mitch. I know, that's grim. So, I, so PJ, I mean, what do, you, what do you think? What do you think of that issue? I think it's really, really good. I love that issue. Uh, I think it's it's a wonderful take on the final battle between these immortal beings who have, who have fought throughout the ages. Um, I don't feel like it's entirely vital to the plot of dc one million at this point i can't remember what's if any part of it does sort of bear relevance well, in the upcoming issues but this is yeah this is the weird thing isn't it because I, I kind of i i agree with you like i think this is a really fun individual issue that plays with the idea of the one million project like you know if you were reading resurrection man at this time and you got this issue, I think you'd be pretty satisfied by it. Yeah. Like I, I think this is everything the project should be. 
Now, the greater question around how it ties into this greater narrative, I mean, that's open for debate because there are a few things here which are directly referenced in the concluding part of DC One Million, which we will get to. But at the same time, it's a little... It kind of kind of comes out of nowhere, in a way. Um, and I think it just ties into some of the the bigger questions and issues we've had around the whole One Million project, really. It's... Uh, it- it feels very different to everything else we've read in in this book because everything all the other issues include like even even the uh the like the starman issue the batman issue that we that we've read the the brief snippet of green lantern they include characters who were in the rest of dc 1 million before then mm. and you can sort of understand from a certain point of view why they've been included this just, yeah, Vandal Savage and Solaris are there, and we've been uh, dealing with them. But Resurrection Man hasn't even had a mention up to this point, and it's it just it's again as I say, I love this issue. I think it's my favourite thing we've looked at in all of DC One Million so far. But it 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 feels weirdly out of place. Mm. It's it, again, it's. I think a lot of the. I don't know. I feel I hmm. <laughs> I'm so conflicted about it because like because this is such a, a a neat little standalone story, I feel like I'd almost appreciate DC 1 million more if I just read like a big collection of standalone stories in a way um about like where these heroes are now in the future. It's weird that this story ties so closely into the main DC 1 million event but also doesn't in a way like I'm going to take were... that back actually what are you going to take just back? flipped I've just flipped forward through the book and um resurrection man is going to appear again so this he... this its issue is relevant so well, I he... do apologize I hadn't reread the last two issues in the book so I thought I'd just flip forward see what was in there and actually it's 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 pretty relevant <laughs> Well, but here's the thing, though. I know, like, we're going to be, you know, we're talking ahead of ourselves now because in a couple of issues we'll be getting to that moment. But yes, he does pop up again, which explains this issue. But again, like, if you read this issue, or say you were following Resurrection Man and you yeah. read this issue and you didn't read any of DC 1 million, you probably think, oh, that was a cool little story about, you know, the Resurrection Man. But if you were reading DC 1 million and hadn't read. Yes. Resurrection Man 1 million the eventual cameo which we'll get to in a in you know a future episode is very out of the blue and doesn't what ma- doesn't make a massive amount of sense in context no, no. So- it, i yeah <laughs> <laughs> like it's there and it's cool but like were why it's this- um this is why this issue's in in the book, and um, yeah, I'll completely take back everything I said now about why it's here. But I, I still say it's my favourite thing in this book so far that we've read. <laughs> oh, I agree. I mean, and you compare this to that Detective Comics uh, issue. That was the Nadir, wasn't it? That was, yeah, that was rough, actually. And you could ask yourself, like, does it serve a purpose? And is it good? And I think um, the Resurrection Man story is good. Does it serve a purpose? Um, maybe that's a, maybe that's debatable. Like it ties into a thing, but does it? Is it pivotal to the main story? 
then you look at that detective comics thing and it's like is it good no um is it relevant yeah kind of no either like because the, the last panel is the only thing that's relevant and even then that's covered in uh in a follow-up issue as well anyway so could have done without detective comics yeah and it's like and and this story like is you know it, it, it it's um you know maybe it's not the most original thing in the world the idea of like two immortals locked in an endless battle but there's a certain kind of like shakespearean quality to it and even yeah. though i haven't read a lot of the resurrection man series you get a sense of these two characters you get a sense of their like en- enmity and why they hate each other and it feels like something there's a it feels like something a bit grander is going on than some of the other tyings we've had, the detective comics, the Starman, that little Green Lantern five pages. It's um, yeah, it it feels a bit more meaningful. Yeah, I think I was going to use the word epic. It yes. feels like the conclusion to an epic, the Resurrection Man chapter, and it's just in the middle of this this big crossover. But it's also just this this huge moment for this particular character that that he's been. You know, sure, we only had six issues of his comic but from the character's point of view he's been building to it for thousands of centuries and it's yeah i and, and i think they convey that really well i think abnett and lanning with their writing and butch Gweiss with the art as well they convey it all really really well it all works really well together to create this story it's a classy it's a classy story actually and you know it kind of you can see why the Resurrection Man series was critically acclaimed, even if it didn't sell massively well. Like, there's something a bit more going on here than, you know, just for trite. Basically, every criticism that people label at comics, like they're kind of like they're cheap, they're disposable, they're meaningless. This is the counter argument to it. It's like, well, yeah. no, 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 no. There's something interesting going on here. Yeah. Definitely. Again, structurally. <laughs> Given that I think Morrison clearly liked the character of Resurrection Man, wanted him to play some kind of greater part in this big time travel story, because that makes sense, I kind of wish that just structurally DC One Million had been the core storyline, the core miniseries had been bolstered. So I wish we'd seen more of the future stuff with our heroes as part of the main story. I wish that Resurrection Man had been part of the main story in a way. Yes. Like it suffers because stuff is scattered and put out across multiple issues. Like um because yeah, DC one million is only four issues, you know. I know we're reading all this tying stuff, but like why not make it um an eight issue miniseries with a more focused storyline and let's see we don't need these data dumps. Let's see what Flash is doing in the future. Let's see this bizarro plague. Let's see these two storylines playing out at the same time and, and how they overlap and come together. And it's not even like that's unprecedented at this time. They could just do, if they, if they just wanted to call it JLA 1 million and do this 8, 12, however many issues to tell this story properly. Like around this same time, Marvel were doing Avengers Forever, which was a 12 mm. issue series where Kurt Busiek, time travel again, <laughs> tell, told a story that ran alongside the main Avengers book. And and filled in a lot of gaps there, and it's brilliant. I love oh. Avengers Forever. Oh my god, yeah. I mean, yeah. God, you talk about a series we we could talk about, but yeah, uh, Avengers Forever, the the Destiny War. That is that is fantastic. I mean, I feel if you want to tell a tight time travel story that is 
nonetheless incredibly complex. Like, that's how you do it. But it's with with a title like that, with Avengers Forever and the, the epic story Busick was telling, you could easily see how Marvel could have tried to do that as a crossover mm. in, in the same way as they've as DC have done DC 1 million, and it wouldn't have worked as well. So I feel like DC 1 million is a better fit for that kind of thing. Around this time, they were also doing JLA Year One, which was another 12-issue series, which slightly different remit. It was telling the origins of the Justice League in the post-crisis continuity, but it's still a separate side project running alongside the main JLA book and, mm. and was, again, a 12-issue series to tell that. DC One Million is a very ambitious project, and I am very glad that they they tried it. I really am. Like It, it was a fun thing to do. I do, I do just think it's kind of like an ambitious mess, in a way. Like There's a lot of very good things here. I just feel that with a bit a few editorial changes, it the same content could have been a lot more rewarding. Yeah. And, you know, it's easy for us to say this now, 24 years after, in hindsight, yeah. <laughs> looking at it this way. You know, we don't know what was going on in the DC offices at the time and if they just wanted to have an event that month and, and tapped Morrison for it. We don't know. But, yeah, certainly there are... The main issues with DC One Million are structural. Mm. Yeah, because again, I and I know we've perhaps been harder on the series than we imagined we would be in doing yeah. this kind of recap. I would still quite happily reread DC One Million. Oh you know, yeah, for sure. You know, it's still there's a lot of very creative ideas here. It's a little bit of a mess, but there's a lot of good stuff here. And you know, I've cried out loud like I I couldn't do this. You know, I'm not I'm not sure I could have scripted a a series and a tie a few tie-in issues and plotted like 78 individual issues you know it's it's a hell of a of a thing for morrison to undertake and yeah oh yeah yeah and even if the ending is a bit is a bit convoluted like it's it is an ambitious experience like you know kind of like something like um not new not the new 52 but like the 52 project like the a, mm. a year of weekly comics which Morrison was which, also involved with, actually. Yeah, they were one of the writers on it. I can't remember the full lineup. I think Mark Wade was one of them as well. It was Wade, Greg Rucker, Morrison, and oh, was it? Oh, what's his name? PJ, the the uh, the DC man who's like a creative chap on the movies now, like there, Kevin Feige. Oh, Jeff Johns. Yeah, it may have been Jeff Johns. I can't remember, but yeah, that I liked 52 the first time they did it because I think the writers all sort of took, it sort of focused on four or five different characters, although it would feature a lot of other characters interwoven into it, but they were sort of the leads and I think each writer would focus on a different lead, but everything sort of tied in together. They'd clearly worked together to create this story in advance and work out how they were going to tell it and it was very successful. So then next year DC went, hey, let's do it again and do this countdown book and that wasn't as good. No, didn't read Countdown. Did but... read Countdown. Nowhere near as good. <laughs> but that was that the countdown to... Was that leading into Infinite Crisis? Uh, Final Crisis. It was like oh, the last, sure. The, the last 10 or 20 issues, I can't remember, the title changed from Countdown to Countdown to Final Crisis. Mm. It's like, look what we're counting down to. Oh, you're counting down to disappointment. <laughs> Sorry, that's my own personal opinion. <laughs> the... It's actually, yeah, I, I'd never really thought about it before. But yeah, there's a maybe there's a weird parallel in terms of like weird, ambitious structures between 
one million and fifty-two. The idea of doing like the one year later and mm. jumping all your series ahead by a year in universe, and then saying we uh, Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman have been missing for a year, and then we're going to tell that missing year as a weekly, year-long <laughs> comic series, like. That's very ambitious, and I think successful. Yeah, I think they did it really well, and I think then DC were a victim of their own success with that. Got a bit drunk with power, and we're like, let's do it again. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I mean, that began the weird editorial obsession with the number 52. I know, I so know. tortured after a while. You're like, okay, 52, because there are 52 weeks in a year, and then we'll do Countdown, and now there's 52 universes, and... And the new 52 is going to be 52 titles. Like, folks, it doesn't have to be 52. (laughs) Like, the number 52 is not what made that series interesting. I There's a really fascinating article doing the rounds about the new 52 and why it failed, and it interviews a lot of the people who were involved with it. And I read it. Uh, about a week or so ago and it's really really interesting um i recommend it to anyone who's interested in seeing and it sort of talks up what were the successes and the failures of that project and why did it sort of men dc ended up in this loop of rebooting every couple of years (laughs) for a while um but yeah yeah, i I do recommend tracking it down I, i can't remember who did it where it was where i read it but it was really interesting i i will have to track that down i think as you said, the weirdest, the weirdest thing for me, New 52 adjacent, was when the New 52 happened and um, Morrison's Batman Incorporated series hadn't finished. Yeah. So the New 52 happened in the middle of that event and they did this weird editorial thing where they're like, okay, we're now in the New 52, so everyone's got a different costume, but we're just continuing a story that was happening as normal last month. It was just the weirdest thing in the world. To be honest, the same thing happened with uh, Green Lantern, which I was reading at the time, uh, which is even odder because Jeff Johns was one of the architects of the New 52 and the writer on Green Lantern. And yet you had the issue before the end of... of, um, before New 52 of Green Lantern ended with um, Sinestro becoming Green Lantern again. And then issue one of Green Lantern in the New 52 just picked up there and... Again, it just with slightly different costumes and clearly a lot of the stuff that had just happened hadn't actually just happened anymore, but still just carried on as as normal. And I think that's kind of when I checked out of Green Lantern, to be honest. <laughs> the idea that, okay, the sliding timeline is a major problem for both Marvel and DC. Yeah. You know, it it is a problem, let's be honest. Uh, and, um, you know, they try to not address it or just try to like, you know, occasionally do these soft reboots. But to do a hard reboot and then say that all the superheroes have only really been active for like five years, the DC universe as we think of it is only like five years old. And yet, because we can't get rid of fan favorite characters, there have been eight Green Lanterns, there have been 17 Robins, all in the span of like five years. Like it, it, yeah. it, it just didn't make any sense. It's like, guys, you can't have it both ways. Like, how many Green Lanterns are there? How many Batmans are there? It's um, very, very confusing. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's going to be a point where both DC and Marvel just need to cut their losses and commit to a hard reboot without keeping anything. Just start over. 
because yes fans love continuity and they love matching things up from the past and seeing these things come back in but those stories are still there they're always going to be there and at some point it just becomes too much and your tower falls over well, yeah, and it's when you get, like, because uh, they do it periodically, you get, like, books which are, like, um, the complete history of the Marvel Universe or um, the complete history of the DC Universe, and it attempts to tie it into, like, a longer narrative, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and then you realise that these characters have lived the busiest lives you could possibly imagine, and you realise the Earth has been, like, destroyed 14 times and sometimes Superman's a ghost and other times Spider-Man's, like, a robot from another dimension. <laughs> and then you kind of realise that you you really shouldn't look at it as one big con- one big lifetime. It's really not meant to be like that. Um, anybody should be able to pick up any issue and enjoy it without having to... And then again, and I can appreciate, I can suspend disbelief and know that Spider-Man is still, say in his 20s even though he's had like 48 years worth of solid adventures in <laughs> other timelines alone you know that shouldn't that i'm okay with that i can accept that that is that is a weird quirk of comics yeah yeah well i mean with spider-man he started when he was 15 so but even then i think the received knowledge is is that marvel i think are saying like 12 13 years since Fantastic Four. So he has to be twenty eight now. He's gonna be thirty in a couple of years, his time. So the weird like for me, my I know I know we talk about Marvel characters a lot on our JLA podcast, but for me, um Spider Man was always kind of like in his twenties to yeah. me. Because I when I started reading him in the nineties, he was like a working professional living in New York City. He had like a girlfriend, he had like an apartment. He was trying to balance rent with saving the city. And I was like, okay, that is Spider-Man. You know, I and then of course Ultimate Spider-Man makes him a kid again and he's at school. And I think Marvel's always kind of like wrestled with well, people like him when he's a kid and he's at school, but does he have a job or not? Like sometimes he's a teacher and for me he's always been kind of like I guess kind of like a millennial, really. I guess he's always yeah. kind of been trying to be a grown-up. Well, I think even even Stan Lee had him graduate high school fairly early on in the series, I think. Within the first 20 issues, I think he graduated from high school and moved on to college. So that development of who who Peter Parker is was there at the beginning. But I think no one imagined that, you know, Spider-Man, they'd still be telling stories like almost 60 years later <laughs> when he was created. That's boggling to it's a not, creator it's not really helped by the fact that um when steve ditko was drawing like these kind of high school students in like the 60s and i'd read those old stories i think to myself why are all these 40 year old people going to high school like um because <laughs> again it was like the 60s and like everyone looked old because they they ate i don't know like um i don't know they just ate tobacco and like uh you know <laughs> worked on the ironworks everyone looked harder and older back then uh, I could never really place the age as well. Mm. Yeah. I also feel like with in Spider-Man's case, maybe it's been alleviated slightly in recent years with them bringing Miles Morales into the mainstream Marvel universe because now they do have a young Spider-Man there. So maybe they, they have that. They can age Peter Parker a little bit more. Maybe that's why 
they sort of started bringing things like Mary Jane as his girlfriend back now in the comics. And th- although he's dead now, and it's Ben Riley, I think, again in the comics. Is it really? Everything- yeah, yeah. Um, although Ben Riley with a worse costume because they've updated yes. it. I, oh god! I, we could do a, another spin-off podcast just about stop messing with the bloody costumes for crying out loud. Ah, um, <laughs> oh, dearie me. Um, but PJ, I mean, uh, what have we got to look forward to next issue? He said in a rhetorical way where he knows exactly what we have to look forward to next issue, and he's not uh, looking forward to it. Next time it is Superman, the Man of Tomorrow, one million, and I, um. I don't really remember if I enjoyed this issue or not when I last read this book, to be honest. I do not enjoy this issue. I think this is uh, the bit I would most often skip um, hmm. when... <laughs> oh, God, I'm flicking through it now. This is, I, the I, art's I, I, not great, is it? Some, the dialogue ain't great either, PJ. I'm going to be cruel here. This is a stinker. I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. This is going to be a great episode. I hate, I'm a coward. I hate having opinions in case they offend people. But this one is like, good God, this is dated as hell. This is not good. I'm not a fan. (laughs) So that's what we'll be looking at next time. Yeah, brace yourself, folks. John's John's getting on his high horse. And it's the penultimate episode of our DC 1 million deep dive. Nearly there, folks. We nearly made it. Which means we're nearly back to the main series, and oh, that can't come soon enough. It's delightful. I was looking at the spreadsheet, PJ, and I was thinking, like, oh, heck, yeah, by the time we, like, our episode, we're going to have, like, episode 50, and we're going to be, like, right in the middle of something kind of awesome. And I'm like, oh, this is great. Like, um, yeah, I've missed the main series. I'm very much looking forward to it. Especially knowing what the first story we get when we get back to looking at the main JLA series is. And it's a story I have a lot of fondness for with some fantastic moments. Oh, yeah. No, I'm looking at the spreadsheet now. I'm salivating. I'm like, this is it's going to be great. I'm very excited. (laughs) Um, But 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 PJ, um, have we said everything we need to say about Resurrection Man? Uh, We have. But I do just want to mention one more thing because it's relevant to our podcast. I was watching... uh, the flash the tv show this week oh uh, we're catching up with that at the moment i do enjoy it i think it's a fun show it's not perfect there are some dud episodes here and there but i think it's 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 got a lot of heart and i appreciate that for it they went to a church in the most recent episode i watched in central city and it was the zauriel cathedral <laughs> And I just really like that little reference what? to Zauriel popping up in the Flash TV show. The church is called the Zauriel Cathedral. Or, yeah, something like the Church of Zauriel or something, but it was it's a, a proper Christian church named for Zauriel, and I just thought it was a lovely, a lovely little tribute to uh, our favourite angel. Not my, not your favourite. You, you know, you created loads of angels. You've probably got your own favourites. No, my no, favorite no, no, no. Still, still, still the best comic angel <laughs> ever. Um, wow, that is a... Okay, fair play to the, to the creative team. That is a very deep pull. <laughs> I, I just like that even today, the DC comics and shows and films will do little shout-outs to Morrison's time on the Justice League. I honestly thought, because you were going to say, like, oh, it's relevant to the series. I thought you were going to say, like, oh, and uh, John Fox, the Flash of the Future, turns up or something like that. No, no, Impulse has just turned up, which I'm a big fan of, but... Uh... <laughs> Does he have the big 90s hair? Uh, no. I mean, fairly big, but it's not 
90s impulse oh, pick. That's a shame. Well, you know, you can't you can't have it all, can you? No. No, but they've got the character right, and I'm happy with that. Well, aside, aside from the Flash, PJ, is there anything you'd like to shout about? Um. Oh, do you know what? I have recently been playing a new video game. I completed it the other day, and it's very good. I think people should check it out. It's called The Spectacular Sparky. Um... <laughs> oh, you're, you're, you're a saint, PJ. You're an absolute saint. <laughs> um, but yeah, because... Um... Uh, there, there is a video game which has come out, uh, and um, I, I was thinking like, oh, PJ is really nice of PJ to play this game and support a friend, and then I realised that like, oh, you've got a couple of friends who've worked on this, haven't you? Yes, I have, as, as well as uh, in, in case anyone isn't aware, John wrote a lot of the script for this. Hi, game. everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, the, the dialogue is brilliant. I loved it. It had me laughing. I really enjoyed it. But uh, oh, an, another friend of mine um, is the voice actor J.D. Kelly, who I knew was in it, but I didn't realize he was in it quite as much as he is. He plays one of the main characters in the game, and it was it was brilliant to listen to. Oh yeah, it's it's um. It's yeah, it's Joe's amazing. By the way, um, it's it's been a really wild ride because um, uh, a friend of mine called Sam, who uh, is a uh, solo game developer, called, uh, goes uh, goes under the name of Freak Zone Games. Um, I went to school with him years ago, and um, so around the time that I was discovering J, uh, the JLA, thanks to like a, a couple of copies in the school library. Um, yeah, I was you know hanging out with Sam, and, and Sam was making like early like Flash video games, uh, you know, in, in like ninety seven, ninety eight, that sort of thing. I think he made um, he made like a, a Sonic versus Mario beat 'em up, which <laughs> was just one of those weird like highly illegal kind of like Flash games and stuff. But um, yeah, God, probably about like four years ago now, Sam contacted me about making this game uh, called Spectacular Sparky. Which is like a, a real kind of like throwback to classic SNES, uh, Mega Drive kind of like platformers. And um, I was in my previous job at the time. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> and um, yeah, started writing dialogue. And um, uh, the project got delayed a bit. Um, uh, you know, Sam, and then Sam went back to the, uh, the drawing board and added more content, wrote more scenes. And um but yeah, it's been going on for for a long time, and it's kind of amazing. It's, it's finally out. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, like pre-pandemic, I remember going to a recording studio with Joe uh, and a couple other people, and having a cool session where, on a blazing hot summer day, um, vo- voicing a, a Cockney space badger, uh, and um, <laughs> very surreal point in your life where where Joe's in the booth and I'm giving like kind of notes through the window, going like. Um, could he be more guttural? Like, could he be? Could he be more? Um, yeah, could he be more Cockney? That sort of thing. It was really weird, um, and it's very cool that it's finally out. It's quite exciting. It's it's really good fun as well. So I completed it the other day, and I had a lot of fun with it. And uh, I, yeah, it's it is a real good throwback to sort of the Mega Drive days and the sort of uh, platform run and gun type games. I it's. Really cool, and I have to say, I um, 
I collect Retro Gamer magazine every month because old games are more interesting to me than new games. But I opened it up this month and there's this big double page advert for Spectacular Sparky with art from Richard Elson of Sonic the Comic. And it just, I was like, yep, yeah, well, John's made it and uh, I <laughs> hope he pulls me along with him. <laughs> Kicking and screaming, PJ. I'll, I'll be like, it is, yeah, well, thank you, PJ. You're very kind. Um, and I wasn't aware there was an ad in that magazine because when you when i saw your post about it i happened to be in wh smith's which is a leading news agent in the uk mm-hmm. uh with nick and we were posting some orders and um i was like oh hell i should go and find tabletop gaming magazine and i couldn't um which is a shame because i would love to have seen that um but yeah it's, it's weird like the weird little connections because joe is voicing a character in the game called shig mm. who is a shark pig yeah, <laughs> like you do. Come, come with me on this journey, everyone. Uh, and the weirdest, weirdest, weirdest thing about that is that I came up with the character of Shig. Uh, I hope Sam won't mind me saying this. I came up with the character of Shig probably in year eight of secondary school. Oh no way! <laughs> yeah, no, genuinely. And like, because um, we used to talk about video games and like have ideas for stuff which were well beyond our capabilities at the time. And I did as an English project uh, a magazine about video games. And I reviewed like a ton of fictional games for this magazine. <laughs> and one of the games I made up, it was an advert at the end of the magazine. It was called Shark Pig. And it was like a shark fin going through a bunch of mud at a farm. <laughs> and so we had Shig, we had Shark Pig. And then over the years, kind of Sam ran with the character. And he was always just like a little background joke and a character. And then he just made him a character in this game, like updated, you know, and everything. And and now Joe is voicing Shig, which is just like the weirdest thing in the world. He's <laughs> like a kind of hard, hard-boiled war veteran, blue-skinned yeah. shark pig in space. And um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, Sam got um, yeah, he, he got this kind of amazing illustration made to be the cover of the game by Richard Elson, who, as PJ mentioned, was the superstar artist of Sonic the Comic, mm-hmm. which was. Um, just so influential for a certain generation of people growing up in the UK. And my little claim to fame is that I made that happen by putting Sam in contact with Rich, who is an absolute gent, we should say, (laughs) is an absolute hero, and drew this amazing picture. And the final weird six degrees of separation is that Dave Bulmer... Oh, yes. ...who was a massive figure in the Sonic the Comic fandom in the early 90s. And a presenter on Sonic the Comic, the podcast, which is an excellent podcast I recommend you all listen to. Voices the train conductor in the game. (laughs) That is a very funny sequence. (laughs) And Yeah, and it's just so so weird. And and full credit to Sam, like, he's really really good at just kind of, like, reaching out to to people he knows and his friends and just giving them a chance or saying... You know, could you do this? Could you do that? And I know Sam got to appear on Sonic the Comic, the podcast, and talk about yes. his love of Sonic and 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 uh, the game and everything. And um, I'm really happy for him that it's finally kind of come out. And it's great fun. It really is. I thoroughly enjoyed my time with it, and I will be revisiting it. I need to try the new sort of hard mode thing I've unlocked, and that's going to kill me. But <laughs> Well, exactly. Yeah, I haven't completed it yet, and um, it's a realisation that I'm not very good at video games, and I, <laughs> I am slowly working my way through it. Um, but no, thank fair, you. Some of those bosses are tough. They're bloody hard, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that kind of lava baby thing can absolutely do one. Yes. Just, that was horrendous. <laughs> Um, but no, you're very kind, PJ, and um, it is very, very cool to see it out in the world. 
So yeah, I get ha- hashtag not a sponsor, but yeah, you can get it on Steam, you can get it on Switch, you can get it on the Epic Game Store, and uh, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, I, I played it on the Switch, and uh, it works really well with the uh, the controls there. I, I think it's a, it, it's designed for console playing. I think. I swear this isn't a sponsor. I swear we're not getting any kickbacks for this. It's just uh, it's really nice to see it out in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, PJ, if we've um, if we've um, finished uh, shamelessly shilling, uh, I guess it falls on me to say a massive thank you to Gav Mitchell for drawing our incredible cover artwork. And uh, to huge thanks as well to Elliot Red for composing and performing our amazing theme tune, Justice. And thank you, PJ, for being uh, an amazing uh, companion on this this bizarre journey we're on. And, uh, and thank you, John, for letting me come with you. Oh, here we go. No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> thank you, me. John, for putting up with my nonsense. <laughs> thank you, PJ, for being the font of knowledge that keeps this show <laughs> <laughs> a legitimate work of art criticism. Uh, if you enjoy hearing PJ and I just kiss each other's asses, you can find us on Twitter and the social medias. Our details are in the episode description. Uh, and if we really have finished everything we sought to achieve, uh, PJ, could you could you do your your your, your incredible work and, and see us off in your usual fashion? That's spectacular, Sparky. Available on Steam and the Nintendo eShop. 